Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The generosity of our members and friends is life-changing for young investigators, lung patients, and patient families. Donations made to the ATS will help to support our mission to fund emerging investigators in cutting-edge research, sustain education and public health initiatives, and reduce health disparities to advance worldwide respiratory health. If you would like to make a contribution to the ATS to help support our mission, please visit thoracic.org go slash donate. That's thoracic.org go slash donate. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to Scholarly Podcast. My name is Juliana Ferreira. I'm an Associate Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Sao Paulo and a member of the podcast team here at Scholarly. Today, we'll be discussing a paper published in ATS Scholar entitled Impact of a Novel Ambulatory Curriculum on Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Training. We will be joined by Dr. Stace Casuto, the first author of the paper. Dr. Casuto, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm Stacy Casuto. I'm an assistant professor of clinical medicine here at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine in Philadelphia. Um, I have a few different roles here in education, um, including at the time that this paper was published, I was the associate program director of uh, our pulmonary and critical care fellowship, but since then have transitioned to some other roles um, where I am the director of simulation for undergraduate medical education here at the Perlman School of Medicine, as well as the director of simulation for um, our internal medicine residents. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So I'll, I'll start with I, what I think is like the most important question that I that I had when I read the paper. Uh, your study found that only a third of the fellows that you surveyed uh, rated the quality of their ambulatory education as good or, or outstanding before the study. And they also felt that a standardized outpatient curriculum increased their perceived knowledge and confidence on, on managing patients in the outpatient setting. Does that mean, have, you, have we been falling short on preparing fellows for such an important part of being a pulmonologist, do you think? Thanks so much for that question. So the idea for this study actually came out of my own experience as a pulmonary fellow, uh, where we had, you know, we had an opportunity to see a lot of really interesting patients in the clinic, but that amount of time that you spend in the clinic compared to the amount of time that you spend in the ICU or you spend on inpatient consultative services is really proportionally very small. Um, and I think that that's reflected in what we found in the initial needs assessment that was part of the study is that I think the, I don't necessarily think that the quality of the education in the amount of time that fellows are getting it is poor, but I think proportionally the amount of education and time that they're spending on ambulatory topics is probably not quite what they need um, for those especially so many go on to have future careers as outpatient doctors where they split their time between the outpatient setting and the inpatient setting. And I think what we've seen is that the demands of inpatient service maybe overshadowed the overall needs of the education for the fellow to be more well-rounded as both an inpatient and an outpatient doctor. I see. Do you think this 
this is a possibly a reflection of of programs giving more importance or if you want to say it more time to more severe cases because uh, everyone feels more insecure around severe cases or critical cases and and then we would programs would begin shifting attention to this uh, to teaching procedures or more complicated uh, patients and then uh, expecting fellows to kind of uh, learn how to deal with outpatients as as with with a smaller time in the clinic and how do you see do you think this is something that has been changing or not really so i think that this is something that we see across multiple training programs not just in pulmonary and critical care but i think something that's experienced even in residency training and internal medicine where there's just so many inpatient demands and the depth and breadth of knowledge that you need across the continuum, you know, across pulmonary medicine, across critical care medicine in our particular field, it's often hard to find that right balance. And I think that perhaps up until now, you know, the, the ACGME mandated requirements really only say that you need to have a half day of clinic once a week um, for 30 months of a 36 month fellowship. And so if you're a program who's meeting those requirements based on what the ACGME has mandated, if you calculate that out, that's really only 7% of an entire fellow's time during fellowship. And granted, there's a lot of things to squeeze in. There's scholarly time. You absolutely need um, time in the inpatient setting to be comfortable caring for critically ill patients. But I think that there's been a growing recognition amongst programs and amongst fellows that they really don't want to delay that comfort in the outpatient setting um, in managing patients longitudinally until they become junior faculty, which I think historically had been a bit more of the trend where you learned how to be an inpatient doctor during your fellowship. And perhaps a lot of that learning of managing a patient panel maybe didn't happen until later on um, in your training or even as a junior faculty member. But I think that there's been a desire. Um, I've heard a lot from programs across the country since our initial pilot study came out in the annals back in, I believe it was... Um, uh, 2015, um, that there's a lot of desire amongst programs and trainees that they want more ambulatory teaching to really hone that skill set earlier. And so I think that there's been a shift, um, despite the low amount of clinic that's required by ACGME to really bring more ambulatory teaching into, into and throughout fellowship training. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So you already mentioned that the motivation of the study was your own perception as a fellow that uh, outpatient teaching was, there was not a lot of focus on that. D did you have the same perception as you became a program director? And, and I ask that because your results show that the, the program directors that were surveyed also felt that there was a need for this kind of curriculum. And, and so it looks like the the both fellows and program directors felt there was a need. So uh, the study was really needed, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, as I said, you know, as a fellow, I recognized that along with our at the time division chief, John Hanson Flashen and our APD for ambulatory education, Rupal Shaw, that there was a need to really build a more robust focus on ambulatory education. And I was fortunate that, you know, we really started this initiative several years ago while I was still a fellow. And as I transitioned onto faculty, I was fortunate that 
Um, Meryl Kreider, who was our, my fellowship program director and then as still the fellowship program director when I was the APD for ambulatory education, also agreed that we really needed to put uh, a focus on the fellowship education in this space. And so I would say that my perception definitely, you know, evolved and changed over the course of um, my time transitioning from fellow to faculty and then as program leadership. But I think that the results of the study really recognize that I think to date, you know, program leadership has agreed that this has been a problem, but there hasn't really been quote unquote, an easy fix or an easy solution and to build a robust curriculum um, takes time and, and energy and effort. Um, and instead of having everyone recreate the wheel at each individual institution, the goal of this study was really to see if we could create a standardized curriculum that would be feasible and generalizable and that fellowship programs could implement without having to have so much activation energy and faculty time to build you know, a 40 topic ambulatory curriculum at each individual program. Um, because really at the end of the day, most of these core topics are generally things that fellows should be knowledgeable about. Um, and what this study aimed to try to understand was, was that true? Could you build a, a curriculum at one institution, disseminate it to other institutions, have easy uptake? What would the impressions of the curriculum be? And could we make ambulatory education and implementing it and having it be more present in fellowship training programs a bit easier to access so that fellows could have um, more experience and time, not just time actually seeing patients, but really dedicated teaching on ambulatory topics. Yeah, yeah. So you you already kind of touched on that. The so I wanted to ask you, the study has three aims. Can you can you briefly tell our listeners what they were and why do you think these were the most important questions to ask? Sure. So we really, during this study, we really aimed to understand a couple of different things. We wanted to understand, first of all, what was the current state of ambulatory training in pulmonary and critical care fellowships? Was it that, as we found subsequently in the study, that, you know, there was an actual need for this or was, you know, there's some difference between programs where maybe some programs are doing this better than others? Um, and was there actually a want for this type of teaching? And how were fellows spending their time in the ambulatory clinic and in training? Did they are did programs already have dedicated teaching? Was most of ambulatory education really happening just sort of on the fly with you know bedside teaching in the clinic space, or was there already a dedicated curriculum that people were sort of building on their own? So that was the four to, sort of aim number one was to really sort of understand that current state before we implemented the new, the new curriculum. And then and we really sort of aimed two and three was to understand the impact of the curriculum on both fellows and program directors perception of their ambulatory training. And then we also tried to understand not just did they like it and did it make them feel more confident? And did the program directors think that it was feasible? And did the faculty think that it was feasible? And did they you know, like the curriculum and think that it was factually accurate? But we tried to understand if there was an impact of uh, these teaching scripts on fellow knowledge. Yes, I, and, and, and you, you, you were very successful in, in answering all those questions. Um, you had three groups in the study, right? You had a control group that was doing whatever they were doing before the study, a, a group that 
received partial curricula for one year and a second intervention group that received the full curriculum uh, that had content for two years. I, I, as, as I was reading the study, I was asking myself, why did you choose to have two intervention groups? And, and my suspicion was that you, that you were curious about the, uh, the, how much content was necessary. Would, would having twice as much or having two years of content, would that be more impactful than just one year? But um, can you tell us what, what was the motivation to have three groups? Yeah, absolutely. So just as you said, we were really trying to understand one, we wanted to have a control group. So we wanted to have to know, did this curriculum truly have an impact on uh, on an already baseline group of fellows? Um, and then we also wanted to, as you said, sort of understand was the improvement if there was going to be improvement in perceptions of, of uh, competency in ambulatory topics. Um, and medical knowledge, et cetera, and comfort iter you know, iteratively improved by the amount of content that re they received. So was one year's worth of content equally as good as two years? Um, you know, were there certain topics that maybe were more impactful or more needed? Um, and so we were hoping to have, you know, a robust sample size and we had a little bit less than we had hoped, um, but to be able to try to pick up a signal as to whether or not there was a true impact with each year of content that was added from a baseline control state. Can you can you tell us, can you describe how, at least in, in what well, you, you mentioned in the study that you sent scripts to the programs and they, they were instructed on how to how to deliver the conferences to fellows, but this was at the discretion of the programs when they did it, the order they did it. Uh, can you mention how, at least in, in, in your mind, how were the conferences uh, supposed to happen and what kind of material uh, did fellows have access to? Yeah, so thanks so much for the question. So we really wanted to make this conference standardized, but also build in some flexibility, recognizing that Different programs have different structures, different programs have different dedicated time for teaching. Um, there are different sites the ambulatory education happens and the way in which a particular program might want to implement this or build this into their curriculum is probably going to be variable based on the size and the culture of the program. Um, but we wanted to make sure that there was a standardized component, meaning that all the fellows would get the same content in a given year, but there really was not um, a need to do it in a particular order because you know one topic didn't really build upon another and so we wanted to make sure everybody got the same content over the course of an academic year but to give flexibility in terms of faculty schedules so if you have someone who in a on faculty who's maybe your sarcoidosis person but they weren't available to give a talk in January but they could do it in June um, in the course of the study and I think in the course of overall fellowship education it probably doesn't matter at which point in an academic year you do um, a particular topic as long as the fellows are getting it at some point in time during their training um, and we recognize that faculty flexibility um, is really important in terms of finding faculty who are willing to lead conferences. Um, and in terms of the content that the programs received, we really wanted it to be ideally as easily easy as possible for a faculty member to pick up a script and hopefully have to do minimal preparation. And that was one of the things we we asked the faculty in the 
program directors about was, you know, how much time and prep did you have to put into leading one of these conferences? We specifically told people that we didn't want them to be making PowerPoint slides. And really the goal of these conferences was to have a conversation about management and to have a little bit of flexibility in the conference and not have it be so rigid. Um, and importantly, to have the fellows have an opportunity to ask questions that they might not feel comfortable asking in a more formal conference setting, but they might feel comfortable asking a faculty expert in a more intimate conversation where they're going through a series of cases and talking about the foundational literature and evidence base for making these different clinical decisions um, without you know, the formality of sitting and listening to someone lecture them with a PowerPoint slide set. Yeah, so it looks like it absolutely fundamental part of the success of the study is this combination of the standardization with some flexibility it makes a lot of sense. Um, looking at the results of the, uh, you had a pre-intervention survey where um, uh, you asked uh, fellows and program directors about how they had been doing, uh, had been learning and teaching outpatient uh, content. And, and it looks like most programs were focusing on using faculty percepting in the clinic as the core and their as the core of their previous teaching method. But on the other hand, more than 70% of the fellows reported that they wanted more ambulatory teaching. Do you think that this means that programs had been focusing on, on practical experiencing and expecting fellows to fill any gaps of, in knowledge on their own while, while fellows were expecting more formal uh, teaching and, and uh, lectures or conferences or any other type of more uh, formal teaching? You know, I think that this is generally a reflection of, you know, there's so much that you can teach um, a trainee in the space of pulmonary medicine and critical care medicine on the inpatient and outpatient side, um, that I think that these results reflect that there was probably a heavy reliance, as you said, on gaining knowledge on the fly during faculty trainee interaction related to direct patient care, um, and maybe less so as we saw, you know, the perception, at least from the fellows, that there was, you know, regular dedicated ambulatory teaching. And part of this may be signposting that we don't always say you are getting teaching now and to have the trainees understand that they're being taught about an ambulatory topic. But I think one of the, the goals of this study is by saying you are getting a dedicated ambulatory curriculum, not only builds a more robust educational experience, but also helps the fellow to maybe recognize that they, you know, to feel more confident that they have gotten a dedicated skill set and ambulatory teaching that isn't just that sort of on the fly knowledge um, that happens and maybe preceptor dependent or dependent upon how busy a particular clinic session is, how much teaching they're getting. Um, and so there's a lot of variability there as there is on an inpatient service. If you're particularly busy, you know, you may not have the opportunity to do as much dedicated teaching on a given day. But I think because the the outpatient experience is so relatively limited to the inpatient amount of time that's required during fellowship training, I suspect that that probably has um, at least partially contributed to what we saw in the results of the study. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, in one of your figures, uh, I think it's figure two, you show, you show um, what changed comparing the everyone pre-intervention and control group and the, the both intervention groups. And you show how fellows perception of knowledge 
and it shows that that they 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 felt that knowledge increased uh, when they got the the curriculum, and it was more important uh, for the group that got two years of content. But it, it, uh, it I, I, I thought it was curious that the desire for more teaching was still high, even in, in, in it was not very different from the control group. So, so the, the fellows in the intervention group actually got uh, 40 conferences and with all, with all the important topics, but they still felt that they wanted more teaching. What do you think are explanations for this finding? So I think that part of this may be that once you start to dive deeper into a topic, you may start to realize that there's a lot that maybe you don't know and you want to learn more about it. And so I suspect that that may be part of it. This may also be the fellows regardless. And I think faculty too always, you know, have a desire to want to learn more and get more education and teaching on, on particular things. And so I think that that is probably part of it. You know, we saw that the same level was there, you know, across the group. And I initially thought that maybe there would be a change there. Um, and so I agree with you. I was a little surprised that there wasn't. But I think the fact that they, in the other questions that we asked, there was, again, iterative improvement. And this was one of the reasons we did the, the control, the one year and the two years, that you can see it sort of gradually increases between, between the groups that got, you know, no content, some content, and all of the content. But I think that, you know, this just really reflects that, they still, you know, want more teaching um, in this space. I didn't ask them, do you want more teaching in critical care or more teaching in, you know, pulmonary consults? So I don't have that um, particular data point to compare it to, but I suspect that, you know, the, the responses to that type of question may also be high as well. But again, it's all speculation. We don't have that particular data point for comparison. But what we did look at um, in the study is we asked fellows about, you know, the relative confidence in different, um, different settings. So, you know, how do they feel um, in the ICU versus how did they feel um, in the outpatient setting in the inpatient wards? Um, and we definitely did see that the, even amongst the upper years, there was a upper year fellows um, versus all the fellows pooled together, that there was um, a difference in terms of the confidence that fellows felt in the ICU setting and the inpatient setting versus their overall confidence in taking care of patients in an outpatient setting. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess, I, at least here in, in Brazil, I see fellows, I think fellows, as they as they progress, in, in some ways, they get more confident. On the other hand, they as they approach being independent and they, they see that, that, that the training is about to end, I think everyone feels a little insecure and they wonder if they, they know everything and nobody knows everything. So I, I, I agree with you. There's always something else that they might want to learn or they would like to more, more in depth. And, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, so looking at the results uh, on the survey on, on program directors, you had, they had a very positive impression of the curriculum. 78% uh, uh, felt that the curriculum positively impact patient care and 100% thought that, it, there was, uh, that the curriculum fulfilled an unmet educational need. So it's not just the fellows who felt that more teaching was needed, it looks like. Uh, can you comment on that? Yeah, so I think that, you know, this is a recognition from the program directors that, you know, I think, as we talked about before, that they 
a lot of people have wanted to do more ambulatory teaching, but the feasibility of it was a limiting factor in terms of who was going to develop the content. Everyone's really busy. How do you, you know, bring in a curriculum? Where do you fit it in? How do you fit it in um, into an already tight schedule? Um, and so I think that this uh, was a recognition that having something that was pre-built um, made that, um, that entry point a bit easier. Um, and I was, you know, pleased to see that in general that it seemed to be largely feasible and sustainable. So that was one of the things we really also wanted to look at. You know, if we built a curriculum that was too hard to sustain or faculty weren't willing to use or it was too hard to find faculty to, to teach or they, you know, it, it wasn't generalizable to the needs of the majority of fellows in training programs across the country, then we really hadn't met our initial aim and our goal. Um, but what I think what we found here was that this was feasible and sustainable programs could recruit faculty um, faculty were willing to teach the teaching scripts they generally felt were well written and factually accurate and fellows I think had positive impressions of the curriculum so I think as a program director if you're hearing you know positive feedback from your fellows that um, you know they're getting more teaching on something that they felt that they needed and maybe had been lacking in the program in general um, I think that that's probably why we saw the results that we did from the program director's point of view. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that this finding of the how much uh, faculty uh, felt that the, the that the curriculum descripts were easy to use and that the fellows were engaged during the conferences, I think this is a great result. And, and I have a specific question about this. Do you think this curriculum could be implemented in for example, in international programs, uh, if we translated it, could I could I bring it to the to to the program here at the University of São Paulo? I, I I was thinking that this could have like a, a big application around the globe, and it would be a very interesting experiment to to see how this uh, translates in in other uh, in other settings. Yeah, no, I think that that would be great. And I would love to see this used internationally and to see how generalizable it is in that setting. Um, you know, there may be slight variations in practice patterns. Um, you know, there's as much of a science as there is to medicine. There, there is a bit of an art, but we really tried to make this evidence-based rather than specific uh, provider preference or style in treating patients, recognizing that there is always, you know, gray area in um, how you manage certain uh, disease states, but we really tried to ground this in the evidence so that it could be um, used uh, nationally and ideally globally. Um, and one of the things that we've been working on um, after the study in conjunction with the APCC MPD is we now have a working group who's working on keeping these teaching scripts updated with the most current guidelines and new literature that's coming out so that they continue to be um, uh, founded in evidence-based medicine so that then they can hopefully um, be, as you said, used um, across programs. Yeah, this was going to be one of my other questions. How often do you think uh, you would need to update? And, and also, I wanted to ask you, how are these programs still using this uh, curriculum? And are you, uh, has it been expanded in some way to other programs? Yeah, so in terms of the frequency of updating, our current plan is to update each teaching script every two years. So basically we're operating on a two year cycle. We just finished 
finished going through the first set of 20 teaching scripts for year one of content, and those are now live on the APCC MPD website on APCC MPD scholars. Um, and then we're currently working on year two um, to update those. And so we'll hopefully be going on an every two year cycle to make sure that things are as current as possible. And then we're have a section on the website to elicit feedback if there's something that seems to be factually inaccurate or there's a new study that has recently come out and such that the teaching scripts are no longer don't reflect the most recent guidelines we can try to update that in real time as much as possible um, and then in terms of your other question I have not gone back to the initial set of programs to find out um, how many of them are still using it one of the the things that I had promised to the groups in the control group was that, that they would have access to it afterwards and many of them took me up on that and since this study um, I've had even before the the curriculum was published through the APCC MPD I had many programs reach out to me and say hey I heard that you have this curriculum we are really looking to find a way to you know improve the amount of ambulatory education we're getting uh, in our fellowship program would you be willing to share the scripts and I've you know shared them um, and we have continued the the teaching conferences here at Penn since we started this back in 20. 14, 2015 was the initial go round. Um, and so um, I think it, it's an interesting question and I should at some point circle back to these programs and find out if they're still using it. I suspect at least in some part, many of them are. Um, and that was one of the questions we had asked them was, do you plan to continue this curriculum? And the overwhelming majority had indicated that they were planning to do so. Yeah, and you mentioned that you, you're still using it. Do you feel at least in your program that it's, um over time that adherence from faculty and fellows has, has uh, been uh, relatively stable? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we build this into the curriculum. We're fortunate here that every morning we have uh, the 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. hour dedicated to, to teaching on different conference topics. And there's sort of a set schedule that we follow throughout a given month. Um, but the sustainability has been uh, pretty good. We've had faculty, you know, who have been very willing and generous with their time to lead these conferences. And we've actually seen a positive impact, I think, generally speaking, on the number of trainees in our program who have decided to incorporate ambulatory medicine into their future practice as attendings after they graduate. Um, in addition to this study, and uh, we worked on improving sort of the preceptor uh, trainee interactions and education that was happening in the clinic in addition to this uh, educational program. And we give our uh, graduate, we have a three and a half year training program for those who do a master's program through our research scholars track. And we give people the option to continue their clinic on in their fourth year before they graduate, it's optional. And many of our fellows have uh, continued to do this, I think in part because um, showing that through this curriculum and other uh, educational initiatives in the ambulatory space that ambulatory medicine and outpatient pulmonary practice is important that our fellows have really taken that to heart and have been more fully immersed in ambulatory medicine in an outpatient pulmonary practice. And I think have had a positive experience which has been reflected in um, many people, including myself, um, having an outpatient practice where I think traditionally a lot more folks had really slanted more towards inpatient and critical care. Do you, do you think that uh, possibly standardized curricula like that could be a, a major teaching tool for BCCM fellowship training? Uh, should we be uh, 
should it cover not only ambulatory but other other important topics and and if so how feasible would it be to develop like a large uh, uh, overarching curriculum for that that uh, included all the important competencies and how feasible would would it be to maybe this is something that you mentioned you were doing at, at at your institution uh doing every doing sessions or conferences every morning do you think do you think it that in the future we could have something just like the curriculum you developed that would cover everything yeah so i think you know i think it's a great point i think that so many different educators across the country and different fellowship training programs are incredibly talented and develop up amazing content and curricular initiatives and what we're not as good at doing is sharing that content across programs um, and i think that what we really tried to do here was say hey like let's all work together and you know we the penn faculty initially built the the teaching scripts but now we have this collaboration with faculty across programs across the country to say hey let's keep this going let's have this as a shared resource rather than everyone reinventing the wheel and doing things at their own institution now that's not to say that there's not room for you know individual conferences or um you know things that are unique to particular institutions or unique to individual training program needs i think that there's always going to be some variability but I think that we as an education community can probably do a better job of collaborating and sharing resources um, across programs so that we're not putting in all the effort that it takes um, to create content from scratch. Yeah, it, well, it's awesome this, I think creating this network of um, faculty and collaborating on the content is really amazing. Uh, Dr. Casuto, it was great having you here today at Scholarly. Thank you so much for, for being here with us. Thank you so much. It was great to have the opportunity to speak with you. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org slash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.